Welcome to CMAJ Podcasts. I'm John Fletcher, the Editor-in-Chief of CMAJ, and discussing the 6th of January issue with me today is Manisa Walji, our Editorial Fellow. What's an Editorial Fellow, Manisa? The Editorial Fellowship is a one-year position, usually for a physician trainee. Basically, throughout the fellowship, we get the opportunity to experience all aspects of the journal, whether that be research, practice, commentary, news, analysis, and just get a flavor to learn what it's like to be an editor and get some training. So you've been doing that for about six months now? Yep. Halfway through? How's it going? Really well. I finally feel like I'm getting a handle of some of the research meetings, uh, which was a difficult process in the beginning, given that I didn't have as much research experience as maybe some of the other fellows. But it's been a learning process and it's great so far. And you've written an editorial for us on diversity in medical education. Um, Why did you pick that topic? Uh, Well, throughout my training, it was something that I recognized uh, coming from a Canadian medical school. We had a diverse physician group in some aspects, but not in all. And so I did realize that there were some groups that maybe were missing from our medical school classroom. And so I felt like it was something that needed some attention. Certainly, the Canadian population is is quite diverse in terms of um, ethnic background, and um, I think you point out in your editorial uh, it's set to become uh, even more so with um, some of the urban centres having maybe um, uh, up to 60% of non-white Canadian uh, people uh, in the next couple of decades. What sort of implication does that have for the training of doctors and the medical care that they give? Well, I think it's important for doctors to be particularly culturally sensitive to the populations for which they work. And some of that cultural sensitivity can happen around formal training, whether that's in the classroom or through exposure to different diverse patient populations. But I think some of that training also happens through experiencing diversity among your peers. So I think I wanted to focus more on the idea that all physicians should be capable of dealing with any type of diversity, whether that has to do with ethnic diversity or cultural diversity, or even socioeconomic diversity, which maybe some people would argue is a little less visible. Have you ever experienced a time when it it sort of helped or where there was a sort of a a mistake in the making? Of course. um, I think many trainees have experienced times when they felt they wished they had more exposure or cultural sensitivity, even if they consider themselves extremely sensitive to these issues. One example that I can think of is when I had a female patient from East Africa and I was conducting an interview along with a colleague of mine. And throughout the interview, especially when speaking about her reproductive health, it became very obvious that she was in some discomfort. uh, Do you know what she was sort of uncomfortable about? Well, it turned out that she later disclosed that she had undergone the practice of female genital cutting and that in her previous experiences, a physician was quite surprised when they had done the physical exam, the genital exam, and they weren't prepared for what they had seen. So it was a sort of a, a new one on the physician, and he sort of didn't hide his um, shock. His or shock, yes. Exactly. Yes. And I don't know, I had, was fortunate enough to have had previous experience working with fem- women who had experienced female genital cutting in my work previous to medical school, so perhaps I had a little bit of an advantage. So when, when the patient's showing some degree of discomfort, that may actually be a message that there's in, something important going on that the doctor themselves might not realize but it might be a cue to to stop and and uh, and ask a question or listen recognizing that um, that particular patient may have concerns that are outside the doctor's experience but uh, so what are you actually calling for in your editorial Manisa? 
So part of the problem is that we don't actually know how well we're doing. We don't have any of the data. There is um, the National Physician Survey, which is a voluntary survey which collects some information from medical students, but the response rate is quite low at only 24%. So we don't really know exactly how well we're reflecting the Canadian population and what our physician base is like. And, and often when we don't know and we don't measure something, the news is it's not going as well as uh, you had hoped it might be. Right. I think two things could be happening. One, it could be that Canadians are quite comfortable with the idea of not recognizing differences, and we really value the idea that diversity is a given, and so perhaps it's something we don't need to examine closely. Uh, But the other thing is that if we don't examine it, maybe we're not speaking about it as well as we should, or perhaps we're not drawing enough attention to it, and that's something that I wanted to express in my editorial in particular. Thanks, Manisa. And you've called the journal out, in fact, on uh, not, uh, not representing ethnic diversity as much as we should um, in our illustrations uh, on the front cover. So we're working to fix that. So elsewhere in the journal, uh, this issue, we have research on um, some common clinical problems, the uh, diagnosis of sore throat, prescription of antibiotics, and uh, weighing of uh, babies. have some commentaries linked to that. We have a review on treatments for HIV and our usual mixture of um, practice-relevant articles, decisions about uh, syncope, uh, an unusual case of um, thrombosis, and um, the uh, humanities and back page. Uh, Manisa, you read the article on um, on diagnosing sore throat, terribly common problem, and um, doctors down the ages have been debating how do you diagnose a strep throat and should you treat it? Uh, What does the research tell us? This research paper in particular looked at identifying clinical prediction rules first through a systematic review, um, and then applied those rules to a cohort of children where they had data um, with sore throat to determine the sensitivity and the specificity of the children with group A strep. Of course, many of the guidelines suggest that uh, clinicians should use their judgment uh, when diagnosing sore throat as to whether to prescribe antibiotics or not. So just how good is clinical judgment at uh, diagnosing a bacterial streptococcal sore throat? So they found actually that none of these clinical prediction rules were any good at uh, determining who actually had group A strep and who didn't. So an important negative message then, but is there a reliable way to detect streptococcal um, infection? So one way that we could do for everybody to make sure we catch them is to use a rapid antigen detection test, which is quite reliable. And I guess some people do that, but having made the diagnosis, um, should you treat or shouldn't you? And um, I think this is the nub of the commentary, uh, what to do once you've uh, detected infection. What, what did they suggest, Melissa? Well, a Cochrane review has shown that antibiotic treatment uh, for sore throat does reduce a lot of complications like otitis media, peritonsil or abscesses, the duration of symptoms, and the rate of acute rheumatic fever, for example. But when taking into account whether we should treat everybody, there's a lot of factors to consider. I mean, if we go about treating everybody, we aren't really cognizant of the idea of antibiotic resistance, for example. Little in the side effects because uh, antibiotics are not entirely harmless. And uh, the other second piece of research in the journal um, is a systematic review of the uh, common harms associated with amoxicillin and clavulanic acid, often prescribed together as co-amoxiclav. Unsurprisingly, they showed that diarrhea and uh, candidal infections uh, were more frequent 
when these antibiotics were prescribed. I think for me, slightly surprisingly, was they did not detect in the review an increase um, in the frequency of skin rash, um, let alone um, other more serious side effects. Which raises the question, is this um, telling us that amoxicillin does not cause other side effects, or is it just that these weren't detected? So it's really an interesting question, John. And as our commentary points out, only 18% of the studies actually had data on the harms associated with amoxicillin. And so I think that's something that we should be cognizant of as researchers and readers. Yeah, I mean, the, co- the commentary uh, authors are, are calling for better reporting in trials of, of adverse effects and harms. Because, as you say, very few trials actually uh, systematically document through diaries common harms. And so it's a call on the funders of research and clinical trialists to uh, be much more systematic in capturing the data and releasing the data for uh, subsequent researchers to summarize in, uh, in, in systematic reviews. Of course, in case you'd forgotten what rheumatic fever was like, um, we do have a case at the back of the journal, 39-year-old man with uh, recurrent rheumatic fever. I was struck actually by and, and reminded by the fact that it's quite a vague presentation. So uh, this man had um, fever, muscle and joint pains, headache, and they've decided that there were a number of things he didn't have. So he didn't have septicemia, he didn't have Lyme disease, um, he didn't have a, a other source for infection and fever, and it was the ASOT, the titer against um, streptococcal antigens, that revealed that this was um, a complication of a recent throat infection. Of course, a lot of our experience with rheumatic fever in developed countries uh, dates back to the time of my father, who had rheumatic fever and uh, subsequent complications with valvular heart disease. Uh, he received high-dose aspirin, and indeed the, uh, the standard treatment even today is high-dose aspirin. So rheumatic fever, uh, very important for somebody who gets it, but terribly, terribly rare. So an ongoing debate, really as to whether we need to diagnose um, streptococcal throat and whether we need to treat with antibiotics. More research in this issue uh, about um, weighing babies. This is research from the Canadian Curves Consortium, which sounds much more interesting than it actually is. We all weigh babies at birth to identify um, those who are, are large or small for gestational age, really with the uh, aim of identifying those at higher risk. Um, And indeed, Canadian uh, babies that are small for gestational age do have an increased uh, risk of neonatal death. Interestingly, uh, uh, Canadian babies um, from uh, ethnic subgroups um, that are small for gestational age have a lower risk of neonatal death. So the birth weight curves seem to be doing the wrong thing here. They're not identifying those at higher risk. They're identifying those at lower risk. And what this research shows is that if you use birth weight curves that are appropriate for different ethnic groups within the Canadian population, then ethnic-specific growth weight curves do indeed identify um, those babies at high risk again. So the message there is that that one curve does not fit all. Uh, We need specific growth curves for uh, specific populations of babies because it makes a clinical difference for identifying a high-risk pregnancies. Sounds very interesting and relevant to our diverse Canadian population, John. Well, we aim to have interesting, relevant stuff, and uh, particularly in the practice section. The review this issue 
is about um, drug interactions for treating people with HIV. And um, this particular group is at uh, increased risk of drug interactions, partly because of their comorbidities and large number of drugs, and also a number of them do interact with the cytochrome P450. More common, of course, is uh, syncope. We have a, a case here, a 62-year-old woman who uh, fainted whilst um, sitting on the loo, uh, comes into the emergency department. Should she have the full works, or can she go home without any tests? So that's exactly what this decisions article looks at. Syncope, we all know, is quite common among the adult population, about 30%, the author's quote, um, a 30% prevalence. I didn't, know. I didn't know it was that common. I'm one of the lucky ones who's not fainting all the time. <laughs> so what do we do with these patients when they come to us? And I think the big take-home message here is that for many of these patients, we don't need any neuroimaging. But there are some cases that present with red flags where we might need some follow-up. So one of the things is to look for is a history of cardiovascular disease um, or a family history of sudden cardiac death. The other things that we could look for as clinicians on exam are, are things like new neurological deficits, which might indicate that we'd need for further imaging, or the lack of a prodrome or palpitations. But the big take-home message here is that we don't routinely need CT or anything like that to follow yeah, I mean, it's, uh, and also it seems, seems to me looking at the uh, list, it's fairly obvious. Something wrong in the head or the heart might have caused the faint. And to think about excluding on clinical grounds uh, important risk factors such as that. And if you can, there's no need for imaging. Uh, if you can't, then, uh, then imaging might be appropriate. Exactly. So, John, we also have an interesting clinical image in the journal this month. Yes, much less common, of course. The image is uh, of uh, it's a CT, uh, the head, and of the liver. Uh, often these things are, are slightly blurry to me, but I think I can see that there's the uh, cavernous sinus thrombosis and portal vein thrombosis. And uh, this is in a 41-year-old woman with irritable bowel disease. She'd had a flare-up of her irritable bowel disease and had been treated with um, steroids, as, as many of them have. And what uh, readers may not have remembered is that this does increase the risk of venous thromboembolism. So patients with a, a flare-up are two to three times more likely to have uh, venous thrombosis. Um, in this case, it was pretty severe. And the authors uh, discuss and suggest that anticoagulation might be appropriate in many cases. So lastly in the journal, we have, uh, of course, our letters section, Humanities and the uh, Digestif back page with the various digital offerings from the website. That's it for this issue. I'm John Fletcher and with me has been Manisa Walji. Thank you.